I had a thought, right? Uh-huh. Like, I looked at the four Ghibli movies that I have on there, and yeah. I was like, actually, you know what? My favorite Ghibli film of all time is Porco Rosso, and uh-huh. I don't have Porco Rosso on there. Mm-hmm. But also, I don't know if I want to have five Ghibli films in a row. Hello and welcome to Screen Screenwalker. Hello and welcome to Screenwalkers, a brother and sister podcast where we the walkers tell you what's on our screens. My name is Becca Josh and I am Becca Josh. How was that? <laughs> that was great. I love that. That was so good. Uh yeah, hi, I'm Becca. That's Josh. <laughs> and um oh my gosh, wait, no, actually I'm really excited that we're doing my side of the bracket today instead of yours again. Oh good. Because oh, Sorry, hang on. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay, sorry. My microphone came unplugged really quickly. The reason Ah. I'm so excited is (laughs) I have been doing, like, I told you about this a little bit because I fell back into, like, my, the very first film at the top of our first pairing today is Robin Hood 1973, which is, like, the Disney animated version. Uh I told you a couple weeks ago that I was kind of getting back into my Robin Hood obsession. Yeah. uh, Because I had had this idea where uh, I wanted to write where I am writing a short story that is a cross between Robin Hood and uh, Dracula. Mm -hmm. And I'm having so much fun with it. It's a blast. I'm like 3,500 words into it and it's been so much fun. Anyway. But I did so much research on the Disney 1973 film. <laughs> and I have so many good little gems to share with you. I can't wait. This is going to be so good. Okay. Okay, I'm excited for this. <laughs> okay, uh, well, let's get things out of the way first, right? Okay, Robin Hood is uh, 1973. It's an American animated adventure musical comedy film that might be the most words I've seen describing a <laughs> film. It's all the genres. Animated adventure musical comedy, and it's a film too. Whoa. You get five for the price of one. Gasp. Um, it was produced by Walt Disney Productions. It was directed by Wolfgang Reitherman. Yes. Wolfgang Reitherman is actually one of like they they call them the nine old men at Disney. They were like the big core animators. That Walt Disney initially hired, and they were the ones that kind of inherited the production after he died. So interesting. So his nickname was Wooly, Wooly Reitherman. He was very prolific animator. Yeah. Story by Larry Clemens, Ken Anderson, Vance Gary, and Frank Thomas. Also Eric Cleworth, uh, starring Peter Ustinov, Phil Harris, Brian Bedford, Terry Thomas, Roger Miller, Pat Buttram, George Lindy, Lindsay, and Andy Devine. I think of those, I've only heard of Roger Miller, Andy Devine, and maybe Brian Bedford. That's fair. Um, so Phil Harris, you will have heard of before because he's he's the one that plays Little John. Mm, he also yes. played um, Baloo in The Jungle Book. 
Yeah, he played Baloo. Yeah, so uh, Robin Hood 1973, obviously based off of the traditional uh, Robin Hood myth. Um, it's kind of interesting because as people know kind of the Robin Hood myth today, it is it, this film has had like a really, really shaping effect, at least on like American perspective. Because like there are quite a few iconic characters that have not been included in this film. Like there's no Will Scarlet, there's no much the Miller's son, mm-hmm. uh, and like you only get like a passing appearance from Alan Dale. Like he doesn't really interact with everybody else. Like he's just yeah, kind of there to be the narrator. He kind of like breaks the fourth wall and addresses you directly a lot. Uh, this, the one thing I was thinking about this film this week is that like this is really the first film basically ever that I think I like have a deep and lasting love for like, cause when we, we first started viewing this film, like I've talked about how like babe was like my favorite movie when I was three, that's probably like the earliest, but the very first time somebody ever asked me what my favorite film was, I remember specifically saying it was this Robin hood, 1973. Um, our grandparents have an, old tape of it and whenever we went over to their house we would always watch it because that was like the one thing there was to do there if you didn't want to play with (laughs) like the very vintage toys that they had uh and so like i just i love this film uh and i like (laughs) i love this film it's a good film i well whether or not it's like good is debatable because at this point in like the walt disney history right like Disney was kind of like running low on budget because they hadn't really had a big hit since Walt had died and they were really, really struggling kind of to like find their new direction, this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this actually, you can kind of see it just in the production of this film. There's a lot of corners cut, like especially if you look at the music, it was supposed to have this big sweeping score, but it ends up having, and like I like the music for what it is, but it's definitely not as grand as it probably should have been for yeah. this kind of film. Like it's uh-huh. kind of got like just this honky tonk guitar twanging along in the background for it, <laughs> and it's kind of sitting on this fence between like like big sweeping score and like honky tonk musical like country jamboree kind of thing, and it never really takes off in either direction. It's. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Kind Not of... to say that I don't love the music. I do love the music in this film still. Like, but it could have been so much more if they'd like had more budget to put into it. Yeah. And that like that's kind of obvious in other aspects as well. I don't know. Do you have opinions on this film? You've watched it about as much as I have, I think. Yeah, it's like <laughs> this was my favorite movie back in the day. Yeah, exactly. Right? I was a small a wee wee little lad. Wee lad, yeah. Uh, this really like I just have always had a deep and abiding love for the kind of story that kind of takes place in a sort of nowhereville, you know. And that's what Sherwood Forest is to me. Yeah, to, no, uh, I, I want to interrogate that a little bit. Do you think that that has anything to do with where we grew up? Yes, um, I distinctly remember when I was very small, thinking that the world was just like. Have you ever played Civilization? Yeah, so it's like just like your little city, right? And everything else is surrounded. Before, before I knew that the world was a globe, I thought it was like a flat expanse that had just expanded forever. Mm-hmm. And it was all just kind of like forests and woodlands and mystery. And it was so cool to me. 
yeah. This idea that there were just places where you could go and like you know climb up in trees and like, Robin Hood is such a cool character to me. Mm-hmm. He's like he's like your hero, right? He's because he kind of doesn't ever like make big mistakes. Mm-hmm. He kind of never, like, you know, he he makes occasional mistakes, but he, like you know, he he can fix them. He can always like he always has the upper hand. He'll always come back and win in the end, right? Yeah, exactly. He's the little man who always gets it done. Yep. The thing that I've always loved about Robin Hood too is that he is a hero in that sense, but a lot of the heroes that you get from like even just like other examples in English folklore are like, you know, really noble, like they have all of these big ideas of like grandeur and self-importance and stuff like that. Robin Hood really isn't like that. He's just so like he knows exactly what he is. He's just a little guy fighting against the man trying to make life mm-hmm. better for everybody. And because he doesn't feel the pressure of having to be like a huge great hero, he just wants to help the people around him. He's yeah. allowed to be funny. And he's so funny sometimes. <laughs> and this this kind of um is a holdover from Robin Hood's initial uh origin is like a broadside ballad, right? Is that like you yeah. get um there's a lot of actually crass humor. <laughs> like huh? like if you say Friar Talk three times fast, don't say it too fast. Like, um, but in like Friar Talk was supposed to be like kind of this like lecherous character, like this like you know, this monk who or this priest who is like kind of going after local girls, but like mm-hmm. Robin Hood kind of puts a stop to it and like enlists him to help him instead. And it's like it's supposed to be yeah. like funny and a little bit crass and um I think that's one of my favorite things that has continued to hold over in the Robin Hood myth is that everybody knows that you're supposed to make him funny. And I really mm-hmm. appreciate that. <laughs> and like this film manages to do it too. Like there are definitely moments when Robin Hood is like being a little bit grandiose, but he's still like funny and lighthearted. And like, what's the point at the beginning of the film where he's like, Rob, we never rob. We just, borrow a bit from those who can afford it you know and then little john says boy are we in debt like, it's, it's it's that <laughs> yeah. exact kind of thing yeah this is my first this was my first introduction to robin hood was this movie and then i went and saw or not saw i went and read the great illustrated classics <laughs> yeah um and let me tell you first off i was like wow there's so many cool characters right yeah uh, all these awesome people, and then when he died, I was like, "That's it! <laughs> I know <laughs> that's how Robin Hood dies." Are you kidding me? No, oh my gosh, no! But that's like another symptom of it being kind of the way that it is, right? Like it's yeah. kind of this nebulous collection of old tales. It's like almost like the Camelot myths a lot in a way, is because like you're collecting all of these sources from like different points of like English history and there's not really a single source to draw from and it can get really disconnected and you will end up having things like, Oh, Robin Hood's just dead now. And I guess they put that one at the end because like they had to, cause he's dead. It's not like he's coming back. But. Yeah. Um, this is, this is, I want to say that this is like a kind of a staple of British literature, right? Oh no! Totally, yeah. You, it's have this, totally... you have the King Arthur myths. Okay, Josh, are you ready for my special treat? I'm ready for your special treat. Okay, I want you to open Spotify and your phone on your web browser, whatever. Okay. Go to the search function. Okay. 
Okay. And I want you to type in Walt Disney Records, the Legacy Collection, Robin Hood. Okay. Okay. Do you have it? Yes, I have it. Okay, perfect. So uh, the Legacy Collection was something that Disney, Walt Disney Records started doing like back in 2014. Um, I don't remember uh -huh. what film they started with. It was probably like Snow White or Cinderella or something. <clears throat> but this is, these were meant to like kind of commemorate things. Uh, they had some uh, audio engineers go into the Walt Disney archives and pull out a bunch of stuff. And they ended up doing one for Robin Hood. It's, I buy, actually bought the CD because I'm a psychopath. Uh, but so it's a, just a little CD. It comes with a little illustrated booklet. It has some like, you know, concept art. It talks about how they found the old recordings of things like this, etc. cetera. Uh, but my favorite part of this whole collection is if you scroll down all the way to uh, disc two, there's just so many little gems. Uh, I want to direct your attention to disc two, track three, uh, not in Nottingham, the Prince John demo. <laughs> it's exactly what it sounds like. Uh, and then right in, in a couple underneath that, starting at, uh, track six and all the way to the end, there was, in the time after the film was released, uh, New Orleans band leader Louis Prima was doing some work for the Walt Disney Company. You will know Louis Prima best for his role as King Louis in the Jungle Book, you know, the orangutan, mm -hmm. I want to yeah. be like you, that guy. He wrote a bunch of songs and performed a bunch of songs and they released it, um, as like a record and they've included the songs from this record on the cd and they're genius like the first one is king louis and robin hood it's him singing about his character king louis and robin hood being friends it's so cute uh robin, and like it's all new orleans big jazz band right it's yeah. so much fun it's so good uh my other favorite one is track number 10 which is friar tuck uh which i actually I, I genuinely i legitimately wrote the lyrics down to read to you because they're my favorite. <laughs> it's, okay. it's like it's such in the it's so in the style of the broadside ballad. Like it's just dumb fun, and you'll you'll hear it. You'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, so the lyrics go: Friar Tuck, Friar Tuck is running out of luck. The sheriff threw the book at him, and he forgot to duck. Robin Hood <laughs> and Little John and all the merry men are gonna try to save his neck before they do him in. We can't let the friar down. Life's a ball when he's around. He loves to sneeze and he loves to cough, but he can't do either with his head chopped off. Ain't that the truth? <laughs> oh it's my so gosh. Much. Yeah, it's so great. <laughs> then, then the second verse goes, we've got to save the friar. It's the only thing to do. The friar's in a pickle. Oh, the friar's in a stew. We've got to save the friar or it will be goodbye until we meet at the great Sherwood Forest in the sky. <laughs> oh my goodness. This is excellent. It's so good. Uh, you have to, like, I don't know. I don't want to play any of this on the podcast in case we get, like, hit with stuff, right? But, yeah, like, uh -huh. it's so fun to listen to. Everybody should go look it up on Spotify. It's just big band jazz fun. It's bombastic. And, like, I'm so grateful. Like, as somebody who loves this movie and loves the Robin Hood myth, it was such a fun little thing to stumble across. Yeah. I just had so much fun. It's great. Um, yeah. So I just, I loved that. That, that was my little I love for this. You. Okay. So good. Um, yeah. And then uh, I fitted this film uh, against uh, the castle of Cagliostro, which is uh, another animated heist film. Let me find yes, it for you. Yes. With uh, Lupin, right? 
Yes, Lupin the third. It's stupid to me how much I love this film. Like, just the character <laughs> of Lupin, I guess. Because like, we discussed this a bit last time, right? Is that, like, I'm, like, super obsessed with, like, heist films. Yes. And I think loving Robin Hood really primed me for loving the character of Lupin. Because, like, it's very similar things, right? Like, they're, like, he's got a bunch of friends. He's totally an underdog. But, like, he's somehow, despite being an underdog, he's also, like, somehow one step ahead of everybody all the time. And he's just clever and funny. And it's great. <laughs> I love him. Mm-hmm. Have you seen this film at all? I have not seen this film. I have seen, like, occasional memes about it. Who's the detective that's always trying to catch him? Oh, Zenigata, yes. Zenigata. I've seen, like, the meme where he's like, Lupin! Lupin! But other than that, I haven't really seen (laughs) anything. Yes. Okay, so this is so much... Let me tell you about this film. So, uh, well, we should read the things first. Uh, Lupin the Third, The Castle of Cagliostro is a 1979 Japanese animated action-adventure comedy film. Action-adventure comedy, here we are again. Uh, co-written and directed by, drumroll please, Hayao Miyazaki. Hayao Miyazaki. Uh, so you kind of you kind of have... I kind of have to. <laughs> you kind of have five on here, Becca. I know. Oh, gosh, I should have spread them out more. This five. whole thing is just going to be me talking about Ghibli film. Yeah. Okay. Well, this is technically is not a Studio Ghibli film. This was before he founded Studio Ghibli. Just... We're taking an extended uh, vacation <laughs> in Japan this week. <laughs> I'm so sorry to anybody who doesn't like Ghibli films for whatever reason. I can't imagine who you are. Uh, part of this at the very beginning of this film, uh, Lupin and his uh, associate, very common associate, Jigen. He's kind of like the little John, right? He's uh anyway you don't need an explanation you know tropes uh so lupin and jigen uh are in monte carlo and they have robbed a casino and they managed to get away from the police especially zenigata who is the police inspector for interpol that's like hounding them trying to chase him down uh Uh, and they managed to escape the casino but as they're driving away lupin looks down at the money realizes that it's fake and like tells jigen to dump it because like it's counterfeit right like it's not worth anything yeah um but it's such a good counterfeit job that like obviously it fooled a casino uh, uh-huh. but lupin wants to get his like he wants to discover this uh counterfeit operation right either to like kind of it's not really t- told why it's mostly kind of just a given that lupin is curious about this kind of thing he's like a very like curious kind of guy and it's kind mm-hmm. of implied that maybe he wants to get his hands on the operation so that he can make that money. Gotcha. But um, so they go, they manage to track the money down to uh, Cagliostro, which is this, or it's a grand duchy officially. It's kind of like a postage stamp country, like uh, Liechtenstein or like a, you, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just really small, like a, maybe a city. Yeah, very small. Like it's just... got a little bit of farmland, but it's like, like one castle maybe and like a little bit of farmland and that's it yeah uh-huh um and so as they're going into this country they find a woman uh fleeing from a group of armed thugs they manage to rescue the woman but uh as chaos ensues she ends up getting recaptured lupin very nearly dies trying to save this poor girl 
Uh, and uh, they discover that this is Clarice. She's kind of like the heir to Cagliostro. Um, so there are two really big families in the country, which is Clarice's family uh, and uh, this count. He's just called Count Cagliostro. Uh-huh. Uh, who uh, needs to marry her in order to uh, get her money's or get her family's uh, fortune and uh, cement his power over the country, basically. Um, and like it's just like it's, it's them against like the evil duke, right? Yeah, or, I guess he's a count. Uh, <laughs> and so like the whole film is them trying to uncover what the secret treasure that the count has or like that the count wants um and like trying to protect clarice um there's kind of a weird thing going on with clarice and lupin where like she like is pretty clearly interested in him and like he is kind of a flirt of a character like he's definitely Uh not like rejecting her advances but he also does seem to see her as like a little sister for reasons that are explained later on in the film so this kind of like weird ambient energy exists between them and it's kind of motivating Lupin to uncover the mystery behind this like counterfeit money and like this big treasure thing. Uh, but like not selfishly, not just for his own monetary gain. Yeah. <laughs> which is like, which is fun. You kind of want that in a rogue uh, character, right? You want to, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I, that's one of the reasons that I really uh, wanted to pit this film against uh, Robin Hood. It's like it's very similar. Like, like you've got the friendly rogue characters that are like heart of gold, kind of you know want to help the people. Hayao Miyazaki's art direction in this is gorgeous. First of all, it's beautiful. It's so fun, and it's just like it's bombastic action. It's and it's like it's all the same good heist shenanigans, but like this time it's got like a nice '80s filter over it, <laughs> and like it's got that like kind of like blary 80s synth music that you get from like 80s action films it's so fun i don't know i love this film it's a good film yeah that's good i was kind of wondering why you pitted these two against each other but now i understand it's pretty yes. cool you should also watch this film if you ever get the chance because i think it's fun sounds good i like it a lot yep uh yeah i don't know which one moves ahead um i think it is going to be Cagliostro. I think it is the stronger of the films. Okay. Like, uh, it definitely, like, I think it lives up to its promise more than uh, Robin Hood does, just because, like I said, with, like, the budget cuts with Robin Hood. Yeah. You're not just doing this so I have to watch it, right? <laughs> no. Um, though that is a good motivation. I did, I was going to say, I will also advance Cagliostro because I want other people to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> you want to raise you know, awareness for it? Yeah, it's like I did with Decoy Bride last week, right? Like I just I want yeah. people to know about it. Yeah, it's cute. It's fun. Um, nice. Yeah, cool. That's all I have to say about that. <laughs> awesome. So let's move on now to your Pixar duo. My Pixar duo. We talked about my Pixar duo duo the other week. Yep. In Coco and Soul. Yep. And your Pixar duo is Luca and Wally. That's and I right. think I already know who's going to win. Because mm. you talk about one of these movies all the time. But I'm interested to see what you have to say for both of them. Do I talk about... I don't feel like I don't talk about either of these movies, like, hardly at all. There's uh, one of these that, like, will play the theme game. And you won't get the song. 
mm-hmm. but I'll say it, and you're like, oh, that's my favorite movie. Oh, okay. That's in- it's been a long time since we played the theme game, so I guess we'll find out. Um, okay. Yeah, I genuinely I don't know. Um, I think I know which one you're talking about, but okay. Right. Yeah, uh, Luca, 2021 American computer animated coming of age fantasy film, uh, by Pixar and Disney, direct- di- directed by Enrico Casarosa. It's written by Jesse Andrews and Mike Jones and Simon, Simon Stevenson, uh, starring Jacob Tremblay, Jack Dylan Grazer, Emma Berman, Severio Raimoto, Maya Rudolph, Jim Gaffigan, etc. Um, Jim Gaffigan's in Luca? Yeah, I think he plays the dad, um, Luca's dad, the fisherman. Really? Yeah. Wow. Jack. Okay. It's pretty good, right? Yeah. Um, have you seen this film? Is this the one you said you had watched like partially? I have watched the first half of this film like three times. <laughs> Fair. Okay. Um, you should really finish it at some point. I should. I know. I need to like actually catch up on Pixar because I haven't seen the last few things they've come out with. But what are the last? What else have they come out with recently? Turning Turning Red. I haven't seen. Right. I, I thought I Turning Red was that. cute. I think that's. I want to see that one. Yeah. Oh, Lightyear, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Lightyear. That one was just okay. Do you remember how, like, convinced I was that Lightyear <laughs> was going to be, like, this, like, cultural reset? Yeah. Because the you... trailer was really good. <laughs> you kept talking about that. <laughs> it was that. such a mid-movie, too. Ugh, I was really upset. Anyway. That's too bad. Oh, well. Anyway, um, yeah, so Luca tells the story of a young boy, Luca, um, in living kind of in like Italy and kind of like the Cinque Terre area where like, you know, like a seaside village is built into these cliffs and it's supposed to be set in like the sixties. So you've got like the vintage, like the gramophones and the bicycles and the Vespas and the, this and that and everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, Luca is a sea monster child who is living uh, off the coast of uh, Italy uh, his, his parents don't ever want him going up to the surface because humans fear the sea monsters and he will almost certainly be killed if he is discovered. Um, but after befriending another young sea monster whose name is Alberto, uh, he discovers that, uh, you know, I think it's kind of known already that like sea monsters can go on land and masquerade as like humans. Um, but he kind of discovers the joys of the human world. He uh learns about like things like like really cool like little kid things right like vespas and like adventures yeah. and like building a ramp to ramp off of and like nearly dying things all say, kids he, have done he very specifically falls in love with vespas yes very specifically the vespa it's the whole thing. thing yeah uh and then uh after kind of spending a lot of time on the outskirts of the town they decide to venture in one day and they discover that they can win the money to buy an actual Vespa. And they're so excited about this prospect, right? So they enter this contest with this friend that, or this girl that they've just befriended, Julia. Uh, Julia, excuse me. Whatever. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so that they can win the money for this Vespa. This is so cute. In like the way that I can describe it is like so when this film was first coming out, there was such a big hype over Luca and Alberto and their relationship. Like, specifically, like, a lot of queer people map their experiences onto it. 
and like mm -hmm. really related with like their friendship and like believes that you know they're in love and like ostensibly i think that it does work as a queer reading that they are like falling in love but also they're yeah. children like <laughs> they don't need to be uh, kissing like they don't need all of this thing right they don't, they don't need that yeah they can yeah but like the way that i equated it when this film first came out is kind of like a castle in the sky was my first really big thing uh spirited away also works for this as well where mm -hmm. you've got these children making deep soul bonds with each other and like clearly yes they are in love but it doesn't need to be in a way that's physically intimate yet um yeah i think it does still work as a queer love story in that sense like uh -huh. and i it, i don't know i think it's so cute it's just adorable like very like just, a very like a very innocent type of love right yeah it's a very innocent type of love story very young and like, yeah and like i totally think that they would end up getting together eventually like i think that that's cute i think that's fun like it's a friends to lovers kind of thing right mm -hmm. and like it's clear that like they mean so deeply much to each other like it's more than friendship like and i don't know i think it's cute um <laughs> Like and that that was a really big formative part of the film. Like first watching this, it was so cute. Like it's just cute. It's just yeah. pure like warmth. Yeah, no, it's it's great, and I think it's so cute. Uh, I actually follow one of the animators. Uh, their name's Kenna Jean, on Instagram now, uh, and they have a webcomic called Prism, which has been really really good so far, and it's really pretty. And I would encourage everybody nice. to go read that. Um, it's very good. What else about this film? Um, yeah, I don't know. It's just it's good right like it's just it's cute and it's fun mm -hmm. and like it's a good disney film it's a coming of age luca learns how to be more assertive in declaring what he wants and in being his self comfortably around other people like and that's the real reason that it's kind of like this queer coming of age story right is not just mm -hmm. like the oh he's in love with alberto that's like that can yeah, be a big part of it it's kind of about like him showing his true colors yeah like coming to accept himself for who he is even though people may fear him for it yeah and uh, yeah it's really good and <laughs> like it's it's very clear clearly to me like that kind of queer narrative and i think that, mm -hmm. that was really good and yeah it's it's really nice. cute and i yeah. think that that's a really good way to kind of introduce kids into these themes is this film mm -hmm. is like kids don't need to know all of the ins and outs right kids yeah. just know that they feel different from what everybody else around them is uh -huh. And they need to know that that is okay and that, like, being accepted for who they are, regardless of what other people might think, is good. <laughs> and that that yeah, will happen can, for them. Yeah. They can come into this new environment and be okay and be happy. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think it's a really good teaching tool, this film is, for that kind of nice. uh, narrative. Yeah. Um, yeah, let's do Wally. Wally, also very cute. Uh, <laughs> I was stupid and i bought the um the disney dreamlight early access package for like 15 bucks or whatever it was uh -huh. specifically literally only because i saw that wally was in it and i was like well i love wally so i have to buy it right <laughs> and i will say wally is the best part of the game all of the other characters have like a little bit of like the dead-eyed stare to them it's a little bit freaky yeah wally doesn't get that he's just a robot like <laughs> and so he's the best one um well i remember you like you sent me the trailer when the trailer first came out and you were like this is not mickey this is an imposter yeah <laughs> this is something like wearing mickey mouse's skin and yeah. it's freaky no it's like do you remember his dead eyes though it's freaky 
Uh-huh, yeah. They, they've managed to mitigate that a little bit in the final product. The final product. It's an alpha, whatever. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, it's just, it's a little bit too dead. And, yeah, the the more annoying than that, though, than, like, the characters staring you with their glassy dead eyes is there are a couple characters, uh, Ursula and Ariel specifically, that live in the ocean, and they only live in the ocean. And, like, you have to, like, if they're not willing to, like, swim next to the shore so that you can do the button prompt to call them over, it's impossible to interact with them. <laughs> it makes it such a headache. It's so stupid. <laughs> That's kind of hilarious, though. <laughs> it, it, genuinely, like, or, like, you will, like, need, be needing to talk to Ursula for a quest, and she'll just, like, F off into the ocean. And you're like, come back! What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> She's like, nah. I'm not nah. feeling it right now. Yeah. I feel like they may have edited that in one of the updates, but like, I don't, I don't play it enough to care. So here we are. Okay. <laughs> it's $15 really well spent for me. I know. I think you should be able to like, you know, fish them, right? Yeah. Like, right. Like toss your hook in and like <laughs> catch them and reel them up to shore. And they're like, what the heck? Yeah. Why are you doing this to me? Why are you doing this? Anyway, Wally, yes, a 2008 Wally. <laughs> American computer animated science fiction film. Produced by Pixar, Pixar Animation Studios. Directed by Andrew Stanton with a screenplay by Andrew Stanton and a story by Andrew Stanton and Pete Doctor. Ooh. Oh, the screenplay also has Jim Reardon as part of it. Very yeah. Pixar, very like very solidly big like middle of the 2000s. Mm-hmm. I would almost say that this is like the beginning or in the kind of in the middle of a Pixar golden age. Mm-hmm. I, I think technically this was the end of the Pixar Golden Age for me personally, at least, because I remember oh, yeah. when this film first came out, there was a trailer where uh, what it, it was like black and white footage of like this cafe in uh, wherever Pixar is, that city in California across the bay. Mm-hmm. But it's that story, right? That's like you always hear about where they go to the cafe. Yeah, and, and the last like... doodle that they had on their little sheet was a little trash collecting robot, like. It was a very cute ad, to be fair. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, starring Ben Burt, Alyssa Knight, Jeff Garland, Fred Willard, John Ratzenberger, of course, Sigourney Weaver. Uh, none of those people speak until, like, maybe an hour into the film. Uh, <laughs> because most of what you hear is Wally and Eve. Yeah, just Wally and Eve. So Ben Burt and Alyssa Knight are the people that provided the voices for Wally and Eve. But there yeah. are so few voice lines. It's just like, and it's mostly like visual storytelling that is happening. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is great. This is what films were made for is visual storytelling. Give me more of it. The 22nd century, I think it's supposed to be set in. Uh, humans have done so much terrible stuff to the planet that we launched ourselves up into ships and we sent little robots out to clean up the earth so that we can come back to the earth later. Uh, but uh, as is later revealed in the film, it doesn't end up working. Uh, there's just like t- too much for the people to do. Most of the robots are decommissioned, uh, and people are just left to exist on the ships in perpetuity, basically, like forever. Um, and the only one of the trash collecting robots left is uh, Wally. Well, they're all named Wally, but like our Wally is very cute. He just does what he does. He's like, and it's just adorable, but, like, one of the things that he, like, he's kind of achieved this, I don't know, robot sentience in movies is such a weird theme, and I loved mm-hmm. how Wally does it, 
just because like it like it pull like it doesn't not pulling punches it's like it just it makes no bones about how Wally is clearly very sentient like like he's this robot with this rich like lived experience in the wasteland right like he's created his yeah. own little home and like he watched his favorite movie is Hello Dolly which is so cute and he's got a little cockroach friend and he's uh-huh. got like a collection he likes collecting things it's so like adorable and it's just it's cute and like nobody makes any kind of like like there's not really a theme of like ai sentience going on because yeah like i guess you kind of get it with um what's the captain's name otto yeah uh or the the captain uh co-pilot yeah the co-pilot thing like it's it's kind of the send-up of the 2001 a space odyssey right where it's like that i'm afraid i can't do that how but yeah <laughs> Well, what's interesting, and this has been pointed out before, I think I actually like watched a YouTube video about like the robotness of Wally. Wally is very much like their own personality, and Eve is their own personality, and every other robot, right? Mm-hmm. What they do is attached to a personality that they have, like the little cleaner robot that like is following him the whole time and cleaning up his tracks. Um, and then there's Otto, who is like this. Um, AI like voice right it's like very monotone very plain um, and they kind of only follow the directives that they're given right so they're a villain in the sense that they're not uh, an individual yeah but that's so interesting that you say that because like even in his interactions where he's doing his best to follow his directives Otto still displays like a modicum of personality like he still is like he's a little bit sassy with the human captain. Like he's very clearly like, well, I know better than you do. Yeah. I know more about American Girl doll than you do, genius. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, yeah, and it's really interesting. Um, yeah, um, this film was so interesting in the way, like, no, I don't think anybody was expecting a film in two thousand eight to talk about climate change the way this movie does. We were all aware of climate change at the time, right? Like, Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth came out, like, <laughs> eight or nine years prior. Yeah. Like, everybody was aware. Everybody was, like, trying to do something. But this is very much in the realm of, like, the personal responsibility climate change thing. Now we're kind of on to more of the idea of, well, you know, corporations produce, like, 71% of, like, the, the top eight corporations produce 71% of the world's emissions. Like, it's not, like, an individual's responsibility to save the planet with all of these things, right? Um, Yeah. And this film, I think, is actually kind of ahead of its time for 2008 in the way that it portrays this as, like, like a consumerism capitalist kind of problem in that it was the company's fault. Yeah, it's not something that you can blame on us as a people, right? We're not doing most of... As individuals, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, like, it's the corporation's fault, and, like, it's not, and, like, the way that they portray life on the Axiom as, like, humans are bombarded constantly with all of these things, like, everything, right? Like, just everything that they could possibly need has been provided for them. Advertisements and and ads. Yeah, everywhere, and it was, it was so prescient in how 
that would rot our brains kind of like i'm not trying to be like all <laughs> anti-social media anti-technology like clearly we started a podcast yeah. we're online we know what's up like we are well i don't oh, know shoot. you're not <laughs> like that's the grid i know ah. um guess don't worry i'm not you have um, a steam account joshua i am not ron swanson no that's good as much as you would like to be <laughs> I don't think you would like to be actually that doesn't make sense. No. No, um, I would not like to be. No, yeah, but it like it was really really prescient in the way that it portrays like human like people like the effect that the bombardment of advertising and this consumerist culture has on us. Yeah. Like in just that you eventually you give up. Like it's exhausting not to. And that's what everybody has done on the Axiom is like they've all turned into like these like you can talk about like fat phobia or whatever, but like it's clearly very like it's gotten to the point where it has affected like the bone structure and like the f- actual physiology of these people. Mm-hmm. Like, and it's kind of terrifying actually. <laughs> like, if you think about it, like it has such this like cute little message of hope too, in that like it only takes one outsider making friends to change everything. Right, like it's right. Wally's earnest attempts to save the plant and to help Eve complete her mission that really saves humanity and is able to bring them back to Earth eventually. And that's the point, right? Is that it's mm. Wally that's yeah. the one doing this, right? It's him, yes. it's his personality that's making this happen. And and I think that's why part you know the end when she like tries to fix him and at first it doesn't work is so impactful because it's been him with all his little quirks and oddities that makes the end of the movie possible. Like I do, I think about the way that Wally's love for Eve changes her and like, mm-hmm. you know, instigates that sentience, right? It, it, yeah. like, he, he, he kind of like passes his sentience off to her. Um, by mm-hmm. introducing her to this world that he has created, and like, and it's so cute, like their little fire extinguisher dance outside of the Axiom. That's yeah. adorable. Like, <laughs> uh, like they're just, and it's beautiful. Like, I think that's one of my favorite sequences in film is when, like, they're just dancing, and he's got the fire extinguisher, and the music that plays over the top of it is just such a gorgeous little piece. And uh, that's the music that uh, you never get. Oh, you're. That's probably right. You're right. <laughs> Every single time I played Define Dancing, you're like, "Oh, what is this? I, I know. It. I don't. What is it?" And I'm like, "It's Define Dancing from Wally." And you're like, "Ah, dang it. Ah, dang it. Yep. Define Dancing is such a good piece. Yep. Um, yeah, this film is really good, and it's got really, really interesting takes. Like, and like, environmentalism is not like. Okay, it is a take that you see in a lot of animated films, but like Hayao Miyazaki is kind of like the Spider's George of <laughs> like <laughs> environmentalism in animated films. Hayao Miyazaki is an outlier and should not have been counted. <laughs> <laughs> he does he does all of it. Uh, sits in a cave and makes two thousand films about uh, <laughs> environmentalism a year is it was an outlier and should not have been counted yes. <laughs> boy can i butcher that joke anymore i bet i can't uh you can always try um yeah wally is so good and luca is so good but i do think <laughs> yeah wally moves on you have me pegged to rights immediately yeah. 
I knew it. <laughs> Wally is the winner. Wally is, it's just, it's so good. Like, and as much as I love Luca and like as important a film as I think it is, I do think like Wally is just a masterpiece. It's just, it's great. Love Wally. A masterpiece. Masterpiece. Okay, moving on. Let's get into our uh, Miyazaki. Uh, <laughs> we have we have dipped our toes in Miyazaki's uh, pool of environmentalism, but now we just take the full plunge. The full plunge, yeah. Genuinely, literally, in this first one, because we've got Natsuka of the Valley of the Wind versus Princess Mononoke first. I guess we'll start with Natsuka because it's the one at the top. Natsuka of the Valley of the Wind is a 1984 Japanese post-apocalyptic anime film written and directed by Hayao Miyazaki. Uh, this one actually technically is not Studio Ghibli. It's kind of considered the first real Studio Ghibli film because it was written and directed by Hayao Miyazaki. And like it's owned by the studio now, but it was originally released for uh, Topcraft. Yeah, it was um, kind of grandfathered right. in. Yeah, it was grandfathered in because I'm pretty sure this is the last film that he wrote. And I think the success of this film is what allowed him to start the studio in the first place. Yeah. So... <clears throat> This one and Grave of the Fireflies. Yeah, Grave of the Fireflies too. Or I don't. I think Grave of the Fireflies is not Studio Ghibli one. Oh no, no it is animated by Studio Ghibli for for Sinchosa Publishing. Yes. Anyway, yeah, it's kind of the, kind of one of those ones that's grandfathered in that everyone's like, mm-hmm. yeah, this is basically. Yeah, um, Nausicaa is about. Um... So, like it said, post-apocalyptic, Nausicaa is uh, living in this world that experienced uh, what they call the Seven Days of Fire, which was a huge war. It's basically like a nuclear war. It's not given as such, and like the element of their destruction is not nuclear per se, um, because like they end up uncovering it. Right? It's basically nuclear. Um, and but what happened to? Like it created what is called the toxic jungle. It's very much like a like a Chernobyl kind of, except they did it to the whole world. <laughs> yeah, uh, so the like whole the world is Chernobyl. The entire yeah, the entire world is Chernobyl. Like everything is covered in these terrible, uh, like toxins. It's not radioactive, at least like um. But the way that mostly this is translated, at least in the toxic the toxic jungle, is that um, it's. Uh, it lives in the soil. It's soaked up by the plants, by their like in their roots and in their water systems, and then uh, they continue to distribute it via like spores and like other means, basically, right? <clears throat> um, and these jungles are also home to these giant mutinous insects. Uh, the most important of which is called the ohm. Uh, we'll get into that. Nasca lives. Uh, Nasca of the Valley of the Wind lives in the Valley of the Wind, where. The, they're protected from these spores by the wind, basically. <laughs> Am I doing a good job of explaining it? No, I'm not. You're doing a great job. Um, You're doing uh, great. Thank you. Um, and so, but the wind blowing through their town gives them enough of the clean air. Like the toxin doesn't stay in the air long enough to actively poison them. Like they do still have to take precautions against it. You see that in the beginning of the film where like the farmers have to go around and inspect uh, the plants for spores to make sure that it doesn't latch onto any other crops. And if it does, they have to burn it away, etc. cetera. Uh, but Nausicaa is the princess of the Valley of the Wind, and she loves nothing more than to go exploring. Yeah, she loves the jungle so much, um, and she wants nothing more than to understand it and to understand what makes it toxic. So that, you know, one day her 
uh, her like her sons just don't have to live in fear anymore, right? Like she wants to find a solution yeah. to what the fox jungle is doing, mm -hmm. and kind of make the world better for everybody. After like you, you kind of meet Nausicaa when she's out on one of her journeys, and then when she returns back that evening, um, a warship crashes in the valley, and uh, Nausicaa meets a princess, uh, another princess who was dying in this crash. She's um, I don't remember her name, Listelle, I think. So Princess Listelle tells Nausicaa that she needs to destroy the cargo of what was in the airship, that she was the one that sabotaged the airship uh, so that they, so that the cargo wouldn't reach its destination, basically, because what is inside the airship is the embryo of, they call it a giant warrior, which was one of these massive creatures that destroyed the Earth in the first place, right? And it has the potential of bringing these terrible creatures back. Mm -hmm. And so Nausicaa's whole mission is to find the people who want to destroy the world again, basically, who want to uh, take a hold of this power. Yeah, it's just, it's really beautiful. Like we said, it has these themes of environmentalism and, like, humanity's relationship with nature. Uh, one of the great things that Nausicaa does is she cultivates uh, the plants from the toxic jungle in her room with clean soil, with clean water, so that she can prove that they're not toxic and that it's something else in the soil, mm. right? Um, yeah, yeah, and it's her like trying to figure out how to heal their relationship with the forest so that they can exist peacefully again with nature. <laughs> uh -huh. And it's like, and it's Nausicaa's connection with nature that ends up eventually uh, saving her life. And there's something really interesting, especially when you take into context what Japan's relationship with nuclear energy is, or mm -hmm. not even just nuclear energy, but like nuclear war first and foremost, right? And then. Like, so you've got like nuclear war and then uh, Hayao Miyazaki has also made it clear that he has kind of very conflicted feelings about uh, the consumerism that happened in Japan previously, like kind of as a result of like the United States' intervention after the war. Um, that's a theme that's really, really prevalent in uh, From Up on Poppy Hill uh, is like kind of this attitude of progress where uh, the main character Umi really wants to hold on to like tradition and things like that. And she yeah. has to learn how to reconcile those two things, the progress and mm -hmm. tradition. Um, so that in conjunction with this theme of like very, what is very clearly a send up of like nuclear war and nuclear waste and like healing our relationship with nature after like a terrible nuclear event. Right. Yeah. Like it's just, it's really interesting to see in Hayao Miyazaki's work and he always handles it with such, like delicacy yes but like also like it's very it's clearly very personal to him uh it's something that he cares deeply about and like i think that's one another one of the reasons that people are drawn to his movies so deeply is because when he makes these films he makes them about things he cares about which is yeah yeah and i think this film does a really good job of doing that um it's very similar with our other film uh, princess mononoke but it kind of in a different sense, whereas Prince, whereas Nausicaa is kind of very clearly about humans and their relationship to nuclear war and healing after nuclear war. Princess Mononoke is much more closely related to, like I said earlier, like industrialization and like um, modernizing and things like that. Yeah. Uh, Princess Mononoke, 1997, epic historical fantasy film written and directed by Hayao Miyazaki, animated by Studio Ghibli, and this so this one is set during. 
uh, what is the late Muromachi period, which is kind of like the mid 1300s to like the late 1500s. Um, but it is a little bit like more fantasy ish too. Like it's got fantastical elements. Yeah, which is again, it's like kind of the same thing I was talking about with Robin Hood, where it's sort of in the mystic beauty of this like age. The that, past, yeah. <laughs> yeah, this age that I don't know and I can't really connect to, but I want to connect to it, right? Yeah, totally. I get the same feeling whenever I, like, Beowulf does the same thing for me, where yeah. it's like, it's like this active traceable history, but also there's uh-huh. monsters. Like, <laughs> yeah, like, I want this to be so real, but it's real. not. Uh, so the film follows... Uh, Prince Ashitaka, who is a member of the historical uh, Emishi tribe, which is a real tribe, fictionalized obviously for this film, but uh, in the beginning of the film, Ashitaka is introduced to uh, a boar god. It's just this enormous boar. Um, Kind of the thing with Japanese gods, right, is that they're largely animal and nature spirits, and that's kind of how they exist in the real world, right? Mm -hmm. So this like it's clear that this boar is like a god. It's not really stated what it is a god of, it just is a god, right? Yeah. Um so Ashitaka at the beginning of the film meets this boar god who has been corrupted by something it's kind of unclear what it is at first, but uh it's later revealed that the boar was shot with like a it's like a flintlock rifle, basically. Yeah. It's um, kind of like a bullet inside of it, and that bullet Yeah, it's like a bullet corrupted yeah. it. And, like, the pain that it got from this thing being in his shoulder kind of drove it to madness. And it has been possessed by this, uh, like, great anger. And that's what's causing it to go on a rampage. So Ashitaka manages to subdue the boar, releases it, spear it by killing it, obviously. Um, But in the process, his own arm is corrupted and he is then banished from the tribe because he's cursed now. And he has to go off and, like, just survive on his own, basically. Uh, he hopes that he'll be able to break this curse by going and finding the source of the corruption and being able to tame it once and for all, which is what he gets to do. Yep. I think, I don't know, you were talking earlier about how you and Kendall were kind of put off of this film because of, like, the violence. The violence... Kendall, I have seen this movie. <laughs> you have seen this movie. Okay, that's good. Yes. Yeah, okay. That's good. Um, was, and, like, I'm, I'm not part... trying to... Yeah. The was part, it the part where like she shoots the arrow and the like blows off the guy's head? No, it was it was before that. It was when oh, okay. the boar god like melts away. She was like, nope, mm, nope. Mm, okay, you know what? Fair. She said, she said, if it's if that's the worst that it is, I will keep watching. That's and not I was the worst like, that is, but... that's not the worst that it is. No. Uh, so we're gonna have to stop. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> and like I'm not faulting her for that at all. Like, absolutely, if violence makes you squeamish, this is definitely one you should stay away from, because it is such an integral part. Like, you can't really edit it out. It's like yeah. art of the whole reason that, like, so the part of Ashitaka that is corrupted during this fight with the boar god is that his arm is corrupted. And so whenever he engages somebody in combat, you can see kind of this curse riling up in his arm. And it always makes the effects of whatever he's about to do like 10 times worse. Like I mentioned, like there's a scene where he's like fighting some guys and he shoots an arrow from his bow and like it takes the guy's head off like entirely, right? Like that's not what an arrow is supposed to do. Yeah, or and... like it takes the guy's arms off and pins him to a tree. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like. <laughs> 
This is kind of an adult movie. It, it is. It's a PG thirteen at least. I yeah. think so. It's it's PG thirteen. Um, yeah. Oh, I forgot about that. Fun fact: uh, the English localization for this was written by Neil Gaiman. So. Yeah, I, I actually I did know that. Uh, that doesn't have anything to do with what we're talking about. Uh, <laughs> um, but so Ashidaka goes to discover like what's going on with what happened with the Sporad, and he discovers this village of uh, ironsmiths, basically. Like they they make weapons most prominently, uh, but like they mine ore and they like process this ore all themselves. And it's really interesting um, because. Like the whole thing is run by this woman. What is her name? Lydia Boshi. Lydia Boshi. Played by Minnie Driver. Yeah. yeah. Um, Lydia Boshi, who like has created this town specifically to act as like a haven for uh, women and like people with leprosy and like mm-hmm. things like this. Um, single women are particularly uh, accepted. Um, and like Lady Oboshi herself is single, I'm pretty sure. Like she doesn't seem to have like somebody she's married to. Yeah. Not that it matters. Um, <laughs> is like she's very driven. Like I guess girl boss kind of. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> like that's the best way I can describe it. Is that like she like clearly is like driven and self motivated, and like what she's doing is ostensibly good for her community. Yeah, but she's doing it to the detriment of the environment. And, like, that's just really a no-go because it's starting to endanger other people like Ashitaka, right? Um, and so on the other side of this war, where the lady of this war, quote-unquote, the Lady of Oshi is fighting, you have uh, Sen, who was abandoned at a young age and brought up by a great wolf goddess and her, like, two children, basically. Like, she was yep. brought up as a wolf with these wolf gods. Uh, and Ashitaka falls in love with Sen and decides to help her uh, drive Lady Eboshi out, or not necessarily drive them out, but like to find a more sustainable way for them to do their business so that they can coexist in peace, right? Yep. Um, yeah, and it's a great film. Also great. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I said, it's. I think it's really interesting the way that these films do, like... Like like I said, um, Nausicaa is all about like nuclear war and our relationship specifically with nuclear energy and the way that it toxifies our planet. Um, Princess Mononoke is, I think, is a little bit more personal in the way that like industrialization is purely a human phenomenon. Yeah. Like everything, like it could literally stop at any time, and like we would be the ones to decide that doesn't make sense like not like nuclear power a little bit kind of but like nuclear has such lasting effects that like even after we're gone it's going to take like millions of years for like (laughs) the worst of our uh nuclear waste to die right basically um yeah but like there's such a personal connection and like the personal connection that lady aboshi has with like uh her um village i guess i don't know um mm-hmm. yeah I there's a lot of nebulous thoughts swirling around in my head right now well, the thing too, the thing that i really appreciate or the thing that i found really interesting about this movie is how like there's not really a bad guy yeah right like everybody's and trying yet, to do the best at for the same time kind of everyone's a bad guy right because <laughs> yeah everyone's decisions that they make 
which are justified in their own like you can you understand why Lady Iboshi does what she does. Mm-hmm. You understand why um Ashitaka does what he does, you understand why Sen does what she does. And all together they kind of make a little bit of a mess. And it's only when Ashitaka and Sen decide to look outside of themselves and help the wider community that they fix the problem. Have you seen both of these? I've seen both of these. I haven't not seen I have not seen Nausicaa and the Valley of the Wind in a long time. So I would have to rewatch it again in order to make a judgment on it. Fair. Sorry, what were you going to ask? I was going to say, which one do you think wins? I was just about to (laughs) ask you the same thing. Um, That's a good question. Uh... See, I'm going for Mononoke purely because I have seen it more recently. (laughs) (laughs) Fair. Um, Yeah, I do think... I don't like it. Like this, the films are different enough that I think it would depend kind of like the mood that I'm in or like the kind of like fatalism that I'm experiencing at the moment. Does that make sense? Like, mm-hmm. like if I'm feeling down about nuclear energy, I think I would want to watch Nausicaa, but if I'm feeling down about like consumerism and industrialism, I would want to watch one. Okay. Uh, that doesn't help us at all at this point. Um, not really. No, I think I will advance one. Okay. I do think it is. I think the localization, at least, is better. Um, I think Neil Gaiman did a really, really good job on it. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, let's advance money. Okay, I think it's a good one. Shout out to Neil Gaiman. Yeah, shout Doing out to Neil good things. Gaiman. He's not our sponsor for this video, but he could be. He could be. Hey, Neil Gaiman, sponsor. <laughs> reach, no. out to, reach out to our, uh, our folks, Neil Gaiman. We don't have folks, but it's we, just we us. Talk. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, yeah, so the last pairing is Spirited Away and House Moving Castle. I do feel, like, I don't feel bad, because I do love both of these movies. But, like, I picked them specifically because they're, like, the two most popular ones. If you ask people that have seen, like, besides My Neighbor Totoro, like, these are, like, the two that most people have seen, right? And I wish that I had had the strength and fortitude to stick Porco Rosso in here somewhere else. We already have too many of them. It's fine. I'll talk about Porco Rosso another day. It's so good. Anyway, uh, <laughs> Spirited Away and House Moving Castle. Yeah, I'll do Spirited Away first because it's the first one. And that's also, I'm pretty sure, the only one to have won an Oscar at yeah, some point. Yeah, it's the only Ghibli that has won, won the animated Oscar. Which is a real shame. All of them should have won Oscars. Anyway. Um... <laughs> well, I don't know about all of them. Not all of them. Most, a lot Tanyo, of them, at least. Ponyo is fine. It's not like. <laughs> no, yeah, it's not. It's. I think Ponyo is another one where, like, it's kind of more directed for kids, right? Yeah. And like, if you saw it when you were younger, then you would have been more attached to it. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Spirited Away is two thousand one animated Japanese fantasy film, written and directed by again Hayao Miyazaki, animated by Studio Ghibli, of course. Uh. Yeah, this is such a good film. Apparently, and I do remember hearing the story that um, this was the first real marking of Studio Ghibli and Walt Disney's uh, partnership. Yeah. Um, Because uh, after seeing the film, John Laster uh, convinced Disney to buy the distribution rights for this film. Mm -hmm. And having, with such a, like, resounding... Like there had been other 
distributions of Ghibli films before, right? Like there had been a couple yeah. Miramax ones. Um, but like this was like the really big start of like bringing all the Ghibli films and like really ingratiating it into like the like the home theater market in the United States. Um, yeah. Uh, speaking of, it's good. <laughs> starting to tangent. Yes. Did you see that Studio Ghibli is partnering partnering with Lucasfilm? Yeah. Did you see what they released? No. Short. It's so cute. It's just it's a little like three minute short. Um, and it's uh, Grogu playing with the dust sprites, and it's very cute. That's pretty cute. It's yeah, it was adorable. You should watch it. Um, and as far as I can tell, that's the only thing that they've done so far. They made such a big meal out of the announcement, though, that I feel like they've got something else in the pipe. I don't know. We'll yep, see. Maybe we'll see. Yeah. We will see. Uh, anyway, <clears throat> yes. So, uh, Spirited Away concerns ten-year-old Chihiro, who is moving with her parents to a new city, and she like is very clearly upset about this move. Like all kids, right? No kid is excited to move at any point. I don't yeah. think. Um, because, like, you have to leave your friends and your school and your house and your room that you love and everything. And, like, no matter how hyped your parents get you are get you for the experience, there's always a little part of you that just doesn't want to do it. Anyway, um, on this drive, they make a wrong turn and they end up at what appears to be, like, an old theme park. Um, and they decide to go exploring a little bit. Chihiro immediately clocks this place as we should not be here. Her parents do not care. They want to wander around uh, mm -hmm. and end up finding this giant feast laid out for them. Nobody seems to be there. Chihiro is upset and trying to beg her parents to leave, but they are drawn in by this magically appearing food. It's <laughs> I, I realize that this is a trope that exists across like all manner of folklore, right? But this was so reminiscent to me of like, like specifically like Irish and Scottish like fairy lore, like fey lore. Or like if you eat the fey food, yeah, like you're just gonna be stuck there forever. Which is exactly what happens. They get turned into pigs. Yep. Uh in an attempt to discover what's going on with her parents, Chihiro discovers this bathhouse run by this witchy baba, uh, where she caters to the many, many spirits Again, like the you know the Japanese deity system is like you know these thousands of spirits. Every little household object, every river, every rock has its own little spirit. Mm -hmm. um, and so she caters to these spirits, helps them relax their troubles away in this huge bathhouse that she owns. She enlists Jihiro into her service, takes Jihiro's name so that she kind of forgets who she is, uh, and uh, indentures her into servitude, basically. And it's all about Jihiro's journey to rediscover herself. Uh, save her parents and escape the bathhouse alive and it's great um yeah I, I don't really even know what to say about this um you get this all the time in ghibli films and this is not the last time i'm ever going to say this about it but the way that hayao miyazaki has his protagonists pr approach their problems with attitudes of patience and love and understanding and like things like this makes such a difference like it's so good all the time well i think i think it you know the thing that has very much it that it benefits from is that it has all of kind of the staples of the the studio ghibli films right it has a young female protagonist who's learning about herself and making decisions and growing uh, and then it has her in a new situation that's not like 
inherently bad, right? Like, Yubaba is kind of devious, and she's, you know, kind of tricked her into this service. But she's not, like, evil. She's sort of living her life and running her business, and all these spirits are living their lives and running, you know, just they come to the bathhouse for their baths, and she is interacting in this new environment, and being in that new environment is what helps her provides a catalyst for change. I think it's such a good metaphor for growing up too. Like this is what coming of age films are all about, right? Is like yeah. kind of metaphorizing the growing up experience or, or like encapsulating it in like one particular set of like instances. I think the way that it's done in Spirited Away and other Miyazaki films are really great. Because, like like you said, like nobody really is a villain. They're just trying to live their lives. A lot of the times in Ghibli films, and especially in Spirited Away, the way that they're doing that is actively being harmful to somebody. In this case, it's mostly just Sen, but like the other children that are there too, right? And like yeah. uh, Haku is included in this too because like he also has his name stolen. Uh, and like everybody seems to be afraid of Yubaba, and it, like it's clear that she holds a great deal of, like, tyrannical power in this universe. Mm -hmm. But, like, she really just is trying to run her business, and this is just kind of the way that everybody has accepted that it is. Yeah. But Chihiro is able to stand up to it and say, no, I do not want to be a part of this system the way that you run it. Now your uh, competitor for Spirited Away, which I uh, love and adore for the name that you've put on our bracket because it's Howl's MC. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> Howl's MC. Wicka, 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 wicka word. Um, that's bad. I'm going to cut that out. Uh, <laughs> you can cut the whole thing about Howl's MC out. Okay, good. And excellent. Anyway. Um, Howl's Moving Castle. Howl's Moving Castle. Moving Castle. At all about yet. Not we at all. said nothing previously to this. That has been deleted at all. I don't know why you'd think of that. Why would you think that? No, not at all. Uh, it's a House Moving Castle, 2004 animated film. Uh, Japanese animated fantasy film written and directed by Hayao Miyazaki. Again, why are you here? You know that already. Uh, <laughs> uh, it is based off of the 1986 novel of the same name by uh, English author Diana Wynne-Jones. I'm just going to explain the plot again and we'll see where we get... Uh, so Sophie is a milliner. She makes hats for a living. As she is going to visit her sister Letty one day in this bakery that she works at, uh, she is very nearly accosted by soldiers until a mysterious wizard uh, appears out of nowhere and saves her and like takes her on this magical walk through the sky to probably the best Joe Hisaishi song of all time, The Merry-Go-Round of Life. Everybody knows it. You've heard it all over the place. Uh, but it turns out that this wizard that was escorting her was Howl, who uh, is becoming quite infamous in the town that she lives in uh, for, uh, what is it, stealing girls' hearts? Eating girls' hearts? Um, something like that. Something like something along those lines. Um He's a womanizer. Yeah, he's he's like a womanizer, basically. There are a lot of details in the film that I think are answered very well by details in the books. We'll get to that later. Um, okay. Yeah, so it turns out that, um, like, Howell is the one that saved her, and, like, 
her sister, Sophie's sister, Letty, is really freaked out by this. She's just like, he could have stolen your heart. And Sophie's just like, well, he wouldn't steal the heart of somebody like me. I'm just this plain little hat shop girl. He doesn't want anything to do with me. Why would he even ever bother, right? Like, I don't even know why he came up to me in the first place. Um, so Sophie returns home that night. Uh, and the shop is, as she's returning home, the shop is broken into by another great magician, uh, the Witch of the Waste, who uh, has a great, I don't know if you would call it like a lust for Howl. She, like, she clearly wants Howl and she wants Howl's heart. And like, it seems that maybe she's in love with him. But, like, in, like, that really possessive way that, like, abusive people do. Um, like, that she just wants to, like, possess him and possess his heart. Like, she doesn't really seem to care about him as, like, a person or really building a relationship with him. Otherwise, she wouldn't be acting this way. Uh-huh. Uh, anyway. Uh, Sophie, having gained the wrath of the Witch of the Waste in this way, is cursed to be old. Uh, she turns into an old woman, and uh, seeing that she can like no longer operate in the hat shop because she can't tell anybody about her curse so she wouldn't be able to tell her family she just decides to leave right and try to find her fortune elsewhere uh ends up on howl's castle the moving castle it's great howl's moving castle um and she uh kind of strong arms her way into becoming a cleaning lady for him and then they go on all sorts of magical adventures it's cute it's very good i really do like howl's moving castle like i <laughs> The thing I think that I love about this film the most is Sophie's journey to become self-actualized. That's, like, it's a, like, obviously, like, it's a trope that is used a lot in movies is, like, the self-actualization and the self-growth and everything. Because, mm-hmm. like, we love a good character. We stand a good character. I, I really like Sophie's, like, because there's such a really interesting way in this film where Sophie's appearance as like an old lady is directly tied to her self-esteem and like her view of herself right yeah so you've got like plain sophie in the beginning and then after she's cursed to be old she's just like this very very old decrepit woman but as the film goes on like she kind of loses the hunch in her back and her wrinkles start to fade a little bit and there's points where her hair starts growing longer again and the way that it kind of fluctuates and uh like throughout the film is just it's really a beautiful illustration of where sophie's self-worth is at that point and it's wonderful to see how she grows and changes throughout the film like doing all of like like becoming this person that Howell can like actually love right <laughs> uh, yeah um well this is another one i actually haven't seen it in a while mm. can't remember i think actually during covid mm-hmm. you dropped off a bunch of uh music oh yeah that was movies. why you guys were sick right <laughs> yeah and yeah. you dropped off a bunch of them and so we well, we kind of binged them a little bit and mm-hmm. We ended up, this is Price and I, yeah. uh, and we ended up uh, watching this one. I, I enjoyed it. Um, I don't know if I was like in the mindset really to like <laughs> critique it at Fair. that point. Yeah, being a sick like that. It's an interest, like, the thing that is really good about this movie is that it is able to take. Sophie in this situation and it you know the name of the movie is Howl's Moving Castle and there's Howl in it and there's also the little fire demon what's his name House of Earth 
great. We stand. Played by Julie Crystal. Fantastic, fantastic uh, character. But Sophie is the the focal character, right? It's all about her growth and changing from this hat keep shop woman who doesn't have a great perspective of herself into um, understanding how she can be loved. And as she does that, she's able to uh, become loved by Howl, right? And this whole, right? Because it's clear to us that she is a good character. Like, she's kind-hearted, she's helpful to others, but she doesn't see that in herself necessarily until she does. And she's able to because of the new situation that she's in. Really, I think you can boil just about any uh, Hayao Miyazaki movie down to there's a character who has some growth that they need to do. They go to a new place that is magical and mystical and wonderful but really the growth or the thing that keeps you attached to the movie happens inside the character. In regards of this okay, so this next part is going to be me trying to convince Kendall to watch the film because I know she loves the book. And it's, <laughs> I love the book too, so I'm gonna to try to come from a place of understanding with that. You should you should just cut this part out and, and send, send it to it me to her? and play it to her. <laughs> uh, okay. Or yeah, um, just just send it to her. Just send her like the bare <laughs> audio. The bare audio. Beautiful. Okay. Um. So, um, here's my pitch for the movie. If you have only read the book and you don't want to watch the movie, it is a wonderful tone piece, but the tone is nothing like the original book. Yeah, but I I don't know. Like I don't want to say that the Howl's Moving Castle book is like less genuine in what it's trying to do, but there's such an air of like, like in the film, there's just such an air of like genuine. It's not the, what's the word I'm looking for. Let me try searching synonyms. Hmm. Uh, like sincerity, I guess is the word I was looking for. Like it's, like, it's so, it, yeah, sincere. Like, it's very sincere in what it's trying to do in, like, preaching its anti-war themes in uh, telling this love story between Howell and Sophie and how Howell sees something in Sophie that she does not see in herself and how she needs to learn to overcome that. And, like, it's the same, it's the other way, too, right? Like, Sophie clearly sees goodness in Howell where he believes that there's nothing but a monster. Um, mm-hmm. Quite literally. <laughs> But it is that, like, the book is, like, much more, I don't know, funny about it, I guess. And, like, it just, it takes that sincerity in a different direction. Mm-hmm. And, like, that's why you need to watch both of them. Or you need to consume both pieces of media. Like, they're just two different stuff. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, I don't know. So that was such a bad job of explaining. I'm going to have to edit all of that down. You I'm can sorry, edit it Kendall, and trim it. <laughs> make it look nice for her and see if she'll accept it. Trim it up, wrap it in a little bow. That's going to be good. Oh, we never decided what we were going to advance. Spirited Away or House Moving Castle. What do you think? <laughs> yeah. uh, I think it's up to you. I personally <laughs> would be more for Spirited Away mm-hmm. just because like I said, I love all the Studio Ghibli films. They're a little bit like... They've got a formula to them, right? And mm-hmm. people say formulaic, and that's a bad thing. That's mm-hmm. not a bad thing. So I think, you know, I think what Spirited Away has going for it is sort of that ambiance mm-hmm. that, like, 
is a little bit more like childhood, a little bit more like that peacefulness. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Okay, yeah, I'd be willing to accept that. That's fine. Okay. Okay.